Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to this podcast of Mercy Unbound. Today, I get to speak with Vinnie Flynn. He has had a music ministry and spreading divine mercy for over 30 years, and we're going to talk about his book, The Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. It's a great topic and near and dear to my heart as a Eucharistic apostle. I hope you enjoy the show. Please share it, subscribe to our program, and let your friends know as well. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound, a series that aims to provide hope, an avenue for healing, and one that will help you better understand and then live the great mercy of God. Uh, when we're talking about mercy, there's nothing that involves more mercy than the Eucharist. I've asked a longtime friend, uh, Vinny Flynn. Many of you know Vinny. He's been involved in a ministry of song as well as a ministry of divine mercy. Uh, for over 30 years. I met Vinny 25 years ago. Uh, he and Father Seraphim Michalenko and Father George Kosicki were putting on a seminar for those interested Divine Mercy people back in 1996. And I had caught up the tail end of it uh, after a trip to Poland at the shrine there and uh, learned so much from Vinny and the late Father Seraphim, the late Father Kosicki. Um, Vinny has written a book that I recommend, highly recommend, The Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. We're going to be talking about that book today. It's available at mercysong.com. And uh, this whole Eucharistic message, people don't understand, but the Divine Mercy message is very Eucharist. St. Faustina had a love for the Eucharist, didn't she, Vinny? And welcome to Mercy Unbound. She sure did. Yes, thanks for being, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, almost every page of her diary was filled with some reference to the Eucharist. It was, you know, the essence of her whole spirituality. She even added her name, changed her name, didn't she? Um, yeah, Faustina of the Most Blessed Sacrament, yes. Yeah. She wrote this beautiful diary, of course, at the Lord's request, but she actually wrote down what the Lord said as well. And I'm just going to read several here, but I want to read the first one. When I come to a human heart in Holy Communion, my hands are full of all kinds of graces, which I want to give to the soul, but souls do not even pay attention to me. They lead me to myself and busy themselves with other things. They treat me as a dead object, which talks about secret one in your book, the Eucharist is alive. Right. <laughs> Expound and expand on that thought. Well, you know, it's something I never had thought about. You know, we, we, we have, we hear the phrase, you know, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And we don't normally think of body as something alive. We think of it as, a, you know, so we think about Christ as the dead body of Christ hanging on the cross, perhaps. Um, or historically, we think of the person of Christ. But I never, as a, as a kid, especially, I never thought about it in terms of, this is the living person, Jesus Christ, the complete person, just as I'm a person. And he's living now, <clears throat> as the catechism even tells us, the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of Jesus Christ, living and glorious in heaven. So there's a, there's a nowness to it. He's actually a person alive. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, Benedict in his first um homily as pope 
thought this was so important that he included that in his first homily, that what you're receiving is not a thing, it's not an object, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ himself, the person who wants to share his life and his love with you. So that's a very personal thing. So it changes everything when you, when you realize that, when you view Christ as a person, especially in terms of the reverence that we, we owe uh, Christ in the Eucharist. You know, I, I wonder, I even mentioned in the, in the, in the book, I even mentioned that if people were to come into the average Catholic church while mass is going on and somebody, some stranger that doesn't know anything about the, the church and he watches people suddenly get up and they walk up and they, they receive this, what looks like a little wafer of bread and they go back to their seats. Would he have any idea that that's the living God? that these people are about to take into them the, the, the living God rather than just a thing. And it, it makes me, you know, I, every time I think of it, I think it's like an example of conscience, like God forgive me for the number of times I've walked up mindlessly, taking it for granted, you know, just mindlessly receive and go back to my seat and back to thinking about whatever thoughts I was having before communion, which might not have anything to do with being in church. Yeah. You know, it's so we really need to to become more and more conscious that wait a minute, this is not only a living person, this is the person. This is the person who loves me more than anyone and who wants to have a, a an incredibly personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with me. You know, another quote out of the diary that I always found fascinating, Faustina said she was royalty because she, after communion, she had the blood of the king flowing throughout her body. And you think, yeah, that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the, when we realize that the personal aspect of, of receiving, then we can understand a little bit more about what Christ's trying to do through, the, through, the, through our reception of the Eucharist, which is actually, you know, live in us and through us to come to dwell with us and live through us so that we become living persons in a whole different way. And in that same way, we become reflections of the icon of Jesus, the divine mercy, because they're one. Exactly. That's yeah. the, you know, that's the ultimate function of Eucharist is to be, to become what we eat just as the, the function of that image is not to just hang it on the wall, as Father Kosicki used to say, it's not just to hang it on the wall and look at it, we're supposed to become it, it's supposed to be a mirror, mirror image, when I look at that image, I'm supposed to see my hand raised in blessing, like I'm, when I look in the mirror, that's what I'm supposed to see, one hand is raised in blessing, the other is inviting people into my heart, so the, the veil that's over the Eucharist, the, the veil of bread that prevents us from really seeing whom we're receiving, that veil, if we lifted it, would reveal the divine mercy image. You said uh, when talking about secret one, it's something you hadn't really thought about. But when we get to step two, this is perhaps even more of one we don't think about. Uh, Christ is not alone. Uh, share with us some insights on that secret. Well, it's something that it never even occurred to me to think about whether he was alone or not. It was just the emphasis, understandably, and it's not wrong, 
is, is on Jesus in the Eucharist. We're receiving Jesus. And yes, of course we are. But we need to understand what, what that means. Who is Jesus? So Jesus is the God-man, the only God-man, fully God, fully man. When I started you know, looking into that a little more deeply, you know, we realized that we each have you know, mind, body, spirit. Jesus is the, um, the second person of the Trinity who's taken on a human nature. So now he's human and divine, and we can't separate that. So I always believed, yes, Jesus is fully present in the Eucharist. But is the Father present in the Eucharist? Is the Holy Spirit present in the Eucharist? No, not under the sacramental species of the bread. In other words, Jesus is the only one who becomes present sacramentally, meaning under what still looks like bread, what still looks like wine. But what the church teaches is that you can't separate Christ into parts. From the moment of the incarnation, Christ is forever man and forever God, united completely. He is never just body and, 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 and blood. He's never just body and soul, human soul. The Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. That's the Council of Trent definition of the Eucharist. So what does that mean? And as I, I started examining that and the writings of some of the, of the popes, uh, that it comes out, Jesus is present. He's present as he is in heaven without leaving heaven. So he's present, how, how in heaven? How is Jesus present in heaven? He's present completely in his humanity and completely in his divinity. He's forever united with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus becomes present sacramentally, present with him is the Father and the Holy Spirit always. And it even goes beyond that. When you and I die, if we're in the state of grace, we believe that we are now going to receive the mystical vision, the mystical uh, experience of Christ. We will never be separated from Jesus Christ again. We now are a part of Jesus in the Trinity. We're with Jesus in the Trinity forever. All the saints in heaven are guaranteed that they remain in the presence of God forever now. So Jesus isn't going to look at his watch and say, oh, bye, bye, dad, bye, mom, bye, Holy Spirit, bye, all you saints in heaven, uh, you, all you angels. I'm going to go down and be present in the Eucharist. He doesn't leave heaven and he doesn't go by himself. His presence in heaven is made present for us in the Eucharist. He is present in the Eucharist exactly the way he's present in heaven, surrounded by all the saints and angels. So though none of them are present under what looks like bread sacramentally, they are still really present with him and they come to us with him. The, the best example that, that I've ever seen of this is, you know, um, when, uh, when I read the autobiography of... Um, St. Therese, she, her mother had died before she received her first communion and she was so prepared. She understood what Eucharist was all about even before her first communion. So she was so excited to make her first communion. 
and it moved her to tears. And the, the sisters who were gathered around her felt, oh, poor Therese. You know, she's so, she's so, this is her big day and yet her mother can't be here. So she's, she's sad because her mother can't be, her, be here. And it's almost like I can imagine her saying, how silly. But what she actually said was, it was beyond them all that the joy of heaven had entered one small exiled heart and it was too weak to bear it without tears. As if the absence of my mother could make me unhappy on the day of my first mm -hmm. communion. Since all of heaven entered my soul when I received Jesus, my mother came to me as well. So it, that, when I read that, it became clear to me that, at least in the English language, the term communion of saints is a pun. <laughs> when we receive communion, we are not only entering into communion with the Lord, we're entering into communion with all the saints who are in heaven because they're with him. And as, and as Padre Pio says, especially, especially Mary, she's at his side at every celebration of the mass, he says. She's present at every Eucharist because she's at his side in heaven forever. You know, one of my prayers I remember as a child was um, at the hour of our death, may I die like you, St. Joseph, in the arms of Jesus and Mary. Mm. There you go, you know, Mary's right there with right. Jesus and how heavenly that'll be with all the angels and saints and God the Father and the Trinity. Right. And, and Faustina, in, in a quote, uh, you talk about Christ is not alone. She wrote in 486, Jesus, you come to me in Holy Communion, you who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit have deigned to dwell in the little heaven of my heart. So again, an affirmation of what we're talking about. Right, exactly. And in step or secret three, you mentioned there's only one mass. Share with us some insights on really what's happening at mass. You know, the church, church always has taught that, that Christ's sacrifice on Calvary is not repeated. It's rendered present. Well, I never understood really what that meant. I, I, I memorized it for the theology tests, you know, but you know, what does that mean, rendered present? Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, much later when I started really thinking about, about the mass that I, I began to, to think about it more completely. I remember once I was at a prayer meeting and um, the priest who had come to be our, our, our celebrant for the mass at that particular night, he, he was kind of gruff and kind of a, um, stern in some ways. And he said, he said, well, I don't know how you, how you, people, well, how you people are used to doing things here, but um, this is my mass, so this is how we're going to do it. And it, it comes, so wait a minute, my mass. Wait a minute, this is, this is the sacrifice of Calvary, Christ's sacrifice rendered present. It's made present in our now. But can we say that this is our mass and it's different from other masses? The church has always taught that there is no difference, that it, it, every mass is simply the, the one sacrifice of Christ made present. Pope, Pope John Paul goes even further. He says, all the fruits of, of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection are concentrated forever in the Eucharist. So that at each mass, as we receive the Eucharist, we are receiving through what he calls a mysterious oneness of time, we are receiving all the fruits of that historic action 2000 years ago. 
We're receiving it in our now moment, as if I'm right now at the foot of the cross, you know? So it's, the, the, there, isn't, there aren't a zillion masses going on all the time. Like right now, there's probably many masses going on right at this moment somewhere in the world. But they're not all individual masses. They are each a rendering present of the one mass that's going on all the time in heaven. And the, the catechism makes it clear that, that this is the one event in history, the death, passion, death, resurrection of Christ, the one event in history that doesn't stop. It didn't happen once and now it's done. It goes on forever in heaven. So it's, it's what they call the eternal liturgy. And so every mass, we are, we are in a sense slipping the bounds of earth and we're present in heaven at that one liturgy. Scott Hahn has that, that well, wonderful uh, section in his uh, book, The Lamb's Supper. He says, we go to heaven when we go to mass. This is not merely a symbol, not a metaphor, not a parable, not a figure of speech. It's real. We do go to heaven when we go to mass. And this is true of every mass we attend, regardless of the quality of the music or the fervor of the preaching. The mass, and I mean every single mass, is heaven on earth. So when you and I are, we get to the point in the mass where the priest says, there are different forms, but it always comes down to pretty much the same. And now let us join the angelic choirs of angels in their great hymn of praise. And we, we, sing, we sing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. I remember when I, when I was going through this and Father Krasicki and I were, we were, he was saying mass and I was his altar server. And we have been talking about all these things about there's only one mass. And we got to that point, we both kind of looked at each other with like this Eureka look, like, wait a minute, we're not saying our own holy, holy, holy. We are actually joining the choirs of heaven who are eternally singing holy, holy, holy. So that phrase in the liturgy is not, is not just symbolic. When we do the holy, holy at the mass, we're entering into the angel's song. We're joining them. It really is if heaven and earth are combined during that mass. Absolutely. Had a beautiful quote, again, which reaffirms what you just said. Oh, what awesome mysteries take place during mass. One day we will know what God is doing for us in each mass and what sort of gift he is preparing in it for us. Only his divine love could permit that such a gift be provided for us in entry 914. So again, we have to learn to see with our spiritual eyes and not with our human eyes and right. Uh, right. mass is uh, heaven on earth exactly now in secret four you talk about the eucharist is not just one miracle what do you mean by that right well was it you know it's when i was a kid i used to think of it as just this you know, magic from the Lord in a sense, you know, it was like, okay, the Lord just creates this miracle so that now what looks like bread isn't bread anymore. And what looks like wine isn't wine anymore. It's, it's Jesus. And so I saw that as one thing, one event, if you would, one act action. So I thought, okay, that's a miracle. I, I, I have no problem accepting that. I, you know, I just, I, I believe in that. But then the, when I started really studying the, the Eucharist and the teachings of the church, um, I came across this phrase, 
um, by Pope Leo the Thirteenth, uh, and he said, "Indeed, in the Eucharist alone are contained, in a remarkable richness and a variety of miracles, all supernatural realities. All supernatural realities." It kind of staggered me. I said, "Wait a minute! The Eucharist alone, just the Eucharist, contains all supernatural realities." in a remarkable rich, richness and in a variety of miracles. So I started thinking about that, about all the different things that, that are taking place. So here we have a, a mere creature, the priest, you know, who just like you and me, just, a, just a, a, a creature of the Lord. At his words, the, 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 the bread becomes Christ. The wine becomes Christ. It happens instantaneously at the words of a creature. That's the, the miracle through the priest. And what the church teaches us is you can't separate Christ. So even though we say the, the, what looks like bread becomes the body of Christ, we can't separate Christ's body from his blood. And so the wine we say be, becomes the blood of Christ, but we can't separate the body and blood of Christ. So what the church actually teaches is that every tiny piece of what still looks like bread is the entire Christ, his body and his blood and his human soul and his whole divine nature in that tiny piece of bread. And the same thing happens with the wine. What, what, what was wine, now the tiniest drop of what still looks like wine is the entire Christ. It's just a mind boggling thing. And then what we talked about before, that Christ, Christ doesn't leave heaven to become present. Somehow, Christ's presence is, is made real for us right there. He is really present in my now time, in this little church where I am. Christ is present. He's also present, the same Christ. It's not another Christ, but in, in somewhere in Afghanistan, someone is celebrating the Eucharist. He's present there, too. The, the same Christ. At the, at the same moment, present. Well, he's not being duplicated. We don't have you know, 400 Christs if there's 400 masses going on. Somehow, the entire being of Christ, who is man and God, is made present each time the priest says those words over the, the, the bread and wine. It's amazing. And what we just talked about, that even though Christ is the only one present sacramentally, all of heaven's present with him. The Father is present with him. The Holy Spirit is present with him. The Trinity has come to dwell in my heart in a in living way. As Faustina said, you know, she was aware, she could experience, she experienced the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in her after communion. That's real. So there's just one miracle piled on another. And they happen instantaneously. Now, in your book, you quoted Maximian Kolbe, and I, I thought that was interesting. I'll read that quote, but he, he had said, what a miracle. Who would have ever imagined such? If the angels could be jealous of men, they would be jealous. So for one reason, Holy Communion. And Faustina in her diary, 1804, said... She adds something to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was the same concept. If the angels were capable yeah. of envy, they would envy it for two things. One is the receiving of communion, and the other one is suffering. So 
as you just stated so well, it's more than one miracle. And it's an incredible. Now, we always talk about receiving Holy Communion. You know, uh, secret five is we don't just receive. Right, right. Help me out on that one. Yeah, again, it's, it's words. Our words get in our way sometimes, just like um, the word uh, um, body of Christ emphasizes just body, which can have negative connotations that we think of a body on the cross, you know. Um, so the word receive seems passive. I'm not, I'm not doing anything. God's doing something. I'm just taking it. I'm just receiving what he's giving. So, and I think as I, as I look at my own life and as I look around in the church, it seems pretty passive sometimes. We, we, we go up to communion, and as I mentioned before, sometimes mindlessly, we go up to communion, we receive, we take something in, and we go back to our seats. Is that all that's happening? If that's all that's happening, we, get, we have real problems, <laughs> because what we're, we're not supposed to simply receive communion. We look at, the, again, the word itself, communion. It means union with if I'm just taking in what still looks like bread and I'm not uniting myself with Jesus, there's a problem. I'm missing the whole point. And because it, it is more than just receiving, it's an entering in. And uh, Pope Benedict especially makes this very clear that it's not enough simply to receive the Eucharist, that it has to be personal. We are we have to enter into communion, enter into union with God. Um, later on in the book, I even talk about St. Thomas Aquinas saying that um, the, whole, the whole reality of sacramental and spiritual communion is that we, we need to long for union with Christ. I need to be longing to be united with Christ when I receive. And this, this is kind of related to the, the, this secret is kind of related to the next one that, you know, right. I need to, I need to not receive, but really enter into um, this. And there's a, there's a great quote that uh, from Cyril of Jerusalem that made a lot of sense to me. What does it mean to enter into communion? You know, um, Pope, Pope, Pope Benedict talks about it as interpenetration, that, that our, our, our eating is actually a meeting between two people, us and Christ, and that his presence is supposed to interpenetrate with ours. That's what he means by entering in. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem gives a great image for that. He says, throw melted wax into melted wax, and the one interpenetrates the other perfectly. In the same way, when the body and blood of Christ are received, the union is such that Christ is in the recipient and he in Christ. That's the whole function. If I'm just going up, okay, I'm, 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 I'm fulfilling my, my Sunday duty, I'm receiving communion. If that's where it stops, I, I'm missing the whole point. If instead I'm doing everything I can to really try to enter into relationship with Jesus as a person, person to person, I'm trying to enter into him to let his life penetrate mine so that I live in him and he lives in me. Vinny, that quote is in 
was on page 65 of your book, Seven Secrets of the Eucharist, available at your website, mercysong.com. You had another beautiful quote on Secret Six from St. Anthony Mary Claret. The more resemblance there is between the person who goes to communion and Jesus, so much better will the fruits of Holy Communion be. And so Secret Six talks about every reception is different. Walk us through that one. Right. Again, it's, it's, it's very related to the previous one, to the entering in. Every reception, I always thought, well, it's all, always the same. I, I can go to any, any Mass anywhere in the world. I receive the Eucharist. It's the same thing. If this is Christ. I'm receiving Christ. Done deal. It's the same thing every time. Only it's not. Because what the church has always taught is we receive in proportion to our disposition. It's true of every sacrament. The graces of a sacrament are received in direct relationship to our disposition. How am I entering into this sacrament? What's my awareness like? What's my longing like? So what that means is every time I receive, it, it's a different experience because my what I'm putting into it is different. And in a sense, to, to say, state it simply, we get out what we put in. If I put my whole being into uniting myself with Jesus, then I've opened myself for more grace. He can fill me more with himself. He can enter into me more because I've entered into relationship with him. If I'm thinking about my taxes and I, I go up and receive the Eucharist and go back and, and now I'm thinking about the football game, I mean, there's been very little relationship here, very little entering in person to person. So that's a very different reception. And it, so what it means is for some people, it, it can be scary when they realize this because St. Paul, for instance, says, if you eat and drink the body blood of the Lord unworthily you you eat and drink condemnation to yourself you know and um, there's uh, St. Paul says whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord a person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself the, uh, the catechism, uh, the uh, teachings of the church in uh, the Council of Trent says, for no crime is there heavier punishment to be feared from God than for the unholy or irreligious use by the faithful of that which contains the very author and source of holiness. So in a sense, that can be scary. And some people having learned this can be over scrupulous, like, oh, I don't dare receive because if I'm receiving with the wrong disposition, I'm eating and drinking condemnation on myself. And so maybe I shouldn't receive. And so the, uh, the one who helped me most with that was Augustine, St. Augustine, who, said, who also said, before you dare to receive, you need to adore, you need to worship. So he, the disposition he says has to be there. But then he also says, um, this is your daily bread. So, so take it daily. So he encouraged daily reception. So he wasn't suggesting that we need to be afraid. What he was suggesting is we need to examine our attitudes and make sure that we, we are trying to receive in the best way we can.
to offer our ourselves completely to the to the Lord. Um, I find it exciting because what it means is if I receive more grace, more uh, blessings from the Lord, the more I enter into receiving him, then I want to do that more and more every day. That means tomorrow I can receive more blessings when I receive the Eucharist than I did today if, if I can prepare for it more. The way Faustina would prepare ahead of time, the way most of the saints would prepare to receive the Eucharist. Um, so that every reception can be a better reception than, than the previous one. Benny, isn't it a little scary though? You know, certainly for those who are over-scrupulous, but what about people in authority who are against the teachings of the church and yet receive communion? Um, it's confusing. It's, it's something where we need, you know, even beyond the whole the questions of, of whether they should receive or not. It, one thing it means, what Faustina would be doing is praying for their souls. You know, because yes, that that this there's danger for them there, far beyond any political repercussions or any percussions in the by the uh, hierarchy of the church. This is they are in grave danger in their personal lives because they're not just as Paul says they're not discerning the body, they're not recognizing, you know, the unity of the body of Christ, right, which is in the church. In secret seven, you said that secret is there is no limit to the number of times we can receive. And I right. in that section, you did talk about the sacramental and spiritual communion. What are they and what do those mean? And yeah, spiritual communion. I always thought I always thought spiritual communion, but you know, sometimes, you know, especially in the in the old days when you needed to fast all day long, all night long, you know, and and uh, so sometimes you, you mess up and you eat something so you can't receive or you're you're in sin and you realize you shouldn't receive. Um, and someone would say, oh, well, you can make a spiritual communion. To me, it was like a, you know, consolation prize. Well, I can't actually receive. So I guess I, I can make a spiritual communion. Well, big whoop. It was like I wasn't impressed, you know, because I didn't understand what that meant. St. Thomas says there's two kinds of eating. And he doesn't use the word receiving. He uses the word eating, which some people get grossed out about. But that's the word Christ used. You know, unless you eat on my body. Actually, in the scripture, the actual translation is gnaw. <laughs> Literally. So he, he wasn't trying to, to spare us the reality of this. You know, you got to consume me. Take me in. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. And um, so if I can't. If I can't actually um, understand what I'm doing, then there's no sacrament. Like a dog can eat a, a consecrated host, but a dog is not receiving sacramentally. So I don't really understand, and I just got in the habit somehow without ever knowing what it was about. I'm not receiving sacramentally. I'm still taking in the body and blood of Christ. But so to, to receive sacramentally, I have to understand and consent to this this sacrament. But what, what St. Thomas says is there's two kinds of eating. Sacramental, which is when I understand that this is the sign that Christ has given. I understand 
this, the concept of receiving sacramentally, um, that this is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. But there's also spiritual eating. And what he says is sacramental eating should always include spiritual eating. And what that means is I need to be spiritually uniting myself with Jesus as I'm receiving, longing for communion, for union with him as I receive. And he says, if I don't, if I receive sacramentally and I am not longing for union with Christ, am I still receiving sacramentally? Yes, if I understand it and I'm assenting to it. Yes, am I receiving the fruits of that sacrament? No, That's a, it's really an outrageous statement that that St. Thomas Aquinas made. And I've had several people, when I put that in the book, several people responded to that like, what do you mean no effect? Of course there's some effect. And I would say, well, no, St. Thomas Aquinas says, there is no effect if you're a false person. And what's a false person? He explains that a false person is one who receives without longing for union with Christ, longing in his heart for union with Christ. That that has to be there. The spiritual eating, has to be there. And what he then teaches is that in some cases, just that act alone of longing to unite myself with Jesus through the sacrament of the Eucharist suffices to bring me the same graces. And, and Maximilian Colby said the same thing, that we receive the same graces. Uh, sometimes we can receive more grace because the longing is more intense. You know, that so if I can't receive sacramentally, and let's say yesterday I received sacramentally and I, I knew what I was doing and I was I was praying a little, okay, Lord, you know, help me be a better person. I'm coming to receive your body and blood. So I'm not mindlessly doing it. There is some intent. But today I can't receive. So I'm sitting there and other people go up to receive communion and I start praying, Lord, Jesus, I really want it. I want you to come into my heart. Lord, please come into my heart even though I can't receive you sacramentally. Just link me with you, Lord. Just fill me with yourself. Live in me. Help me to take you into the world. I'm receiving much more grace than I would yet I did yesterday. Because yesterday it was a, a mostly sacramental eating, a little bit of spiritual eating. Today it's just enormous spiritual eating. And if I could receive the sacrament, I would. And that's the disclaimer, if you will, about spiritual communion. We can make a spiritual communion anytime, but it's not just a thought like, oh, Jesus, come into my heart. There has to be, as a part of that, a longing to actually receive him the way he set it up, that I am receiving him in a full sacramental way. If I'm longing to receive the Eucharist, but I can't, and I'm longing for it because I want union with Jesus, then I am fully receiving communion. It's not a consolation prize. So as you said, the uh, spiritual communion is not a substitute for sacramental communion, but an extension of its fruits with the ultimate exactly. goal being to receive sacramentally. Exactly, exactly. And, and back to the title, which I, I, I use that title for the secret, really for the shock effect that there's no limit to the number of times we can receive because you know, immediately as a quote, good Catholic, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, no, I can only receive once or by extension now in the church. If I, if I happen to be going to another mass, I can receive twice you know, on that day. But you no, know, I can receive 
hundreds of times a day. If I understand spiritual communion, anytime, as Padre Pio says, anytime I'm feeling spiritually dry, fly to the tabernacle. You know, just unite myself with Jesus in the tabernacle. Whether I'm longing for that sacramental presence of Jesus, I'm longing for it in my heart. I'm receiving him in my heart. And I'm getting all the fruits of that reception. My, um, Maximilian Kolbe, as a young man, he, he would constantly make visits to the Blessed Sacrament several times a day if he could. And even that wasn't enough for him. So he vowed to make a, a spiritual communion every 15 minutes just mm. to keep himself united with Jesus. That's real communion, union with Christ. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Vinny, thank you for sharing all these wonderful insights. People, you can get more out of his book, Seven Secrets of the Eucharist, available at mercysong.com. Uh, Again, Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Have the image of divine mercy behind me. Jesus, help uh, us open our eyes and may the veils be lifted. And Vinny, uh, thank you for all your years of hard work uh, spreading the message of divine mercy. And uh, you helped, uh, you were one of my first teachers. And uh, keep up the great work. And I hope our paths cross again soon. People, enjoy these, share these. Uh, Subscribe to the programs and uh, as we continue to spread the truth of Jesus Christ. God bless everyone and thank you again, Vinny. Thank you, Brian. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash drbryan, B-R-Y-A-N, Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R. And on all the major podcast forums, I would love to speak at your church or conference and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again. And for more information, go to the website at drbryanthatcher.com.